When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you're talking about in the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGabby and with me as always is Duncan Castles. In a packed pod today, we'll be talking about the Uniteds of Manchester and Newcastle, the city of Manchester, and a grand old lady. It's with a grand old lady, and we're not talking the royal family here, that we start. It's, of course, the newly crowned Serie A champions, Juventus, who have just sacked uh, ex-Chelsea boss Maurizio Sarri after one year in charge. And, of course... A 100% strike rate as far as Scudetto go, or Scudetti even in plural, having won Serie A in his first season. They then promoted Andrea Pirlo, who had just in the job one week as Juventus's under-23 coach. But what interests us most is the news that we can bring you that Wales international midfielder Aaron Ramsey, who himself only moved to Turin last summer, is made available on a free transfer. Remember, he joined from Arsenal for free uh, in the summer of 2019, uh, but is being allowed to leave after a disappointing first term in Italian football. It's our understanding that uh, with no transfer fee, uh, Ramsey's salary uh, in the remaining years of a very lucrative contract worth €150,000 net per week he will receive some compensation on that to make it easier for him to go. And there is interest from one Premier League club who we understand to be Everton. And Carlo Ancelotti is keen to sign an attacking midfielder who can also break up play. The old uh, classic Lampard role of box to box, of course. However, that salary will definitely be a problem for Everton to match. Uh, but there's also interest from Napoli and Roma where uh, with the tax laws in Italy, they certainly can, um, and if they're able, be willing to match Ramsey's current earnings. Uh, this seems, um, Duncan, to be symptomatic of Juventus's financial problems. Uh, we know they're in debt. Obviously, the COVID pandemic has hit every football club hard, and it seems that Ramsey's being sacrificed, if you like, just to get him off the wage bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, signed just a year ago. Um, he's only played 31% minutes in Serie A for um, Juventus in that season. He's been there um, starting 11, 29% of the time, 24 appearances in total, three goals, one assist. Signed, obviously, before Maurizio Sarri was brought in as coach. Um, I think we've talked quite a lot in the podcast that the the owner or the chairman of Juventus, Andrea Agnelli, wasn't in favour of that appointment. He allowed um, 
his advisors in terms of the sports director, um, Fabio Paratici and Pavel Nedved, who's, who's very important in the, the backroom direction of the club to convince them that uh, Sari was a good idea um, for this season um, that hasn't gelled well. Yes, he won the title, but he only won it by a single point um, over a, a, an inter side that struggled towards the end of the season. Um, lots of issues internally with various players, style of play. There have been complaints through the season. And what you've ended up now with the situation is this surprise appointment of Pirlo um, after Sari was sacked following the, the Champions League exit. Now, Pirlo, as you say, had just taken on the role of under-23 coach, I think, one week before at Juventus. Um, Juventus and Pirlo have been placed in this embarrassing situation where Pirlo was talking about how um, it would be useful experience for him and, and time for, an opportunity for him to learn as under-23 coach. And suddenly he is put in charge of one of the biggest clubs in, in European football and the big clubs in, in world football with zero experience as a coach. And the understanding I have is that has been very much a, a money-saving exercise. Obviously, they have to pay compensation to Sari for sacking him. They've been paying compensation to Max Allegri um, for the last year for sacking him last summer. He was retained on the payroll, told there were some discussions as to whether Allegri would come back. But um, the problem with bringing someone like Allegri back is you have to pay high wages um, at, for that manager and you have to bankroll his signings and improvements he requests to try and fulfil that long-held ambition that uh, Agnelli has to win the Champions League again. And uh, the calculation on total is it was too expensive to take on a manager, pay a high salary. Another candidate would have been Maurizio Pochettino, obviously. Therefore, they have gone for the, the cheaper option in Pirlo um, with the hope that he can learn very quickly on the job and have sufficient status because of his extremely storied playing career, uh, much of it at Juventus. Um, to win them the title again, keep Inter away from reclaiming that Serie A title and uh, and get them to the, the Champions League final. Um, I don't think Ramsey is the only player we're going to see being moved out of Juventus. Um, I'm told that the, the finances are extremely difficult with players and they're prepared to sacrifice quite a few individuals and, and I think probably quite some quite prominent individuals um, who uh, who are, have been put on these big salaries to get them there um, and haven't worked under the regime they have at the moment. So they're, they're thinking clear the wage bill a, a bit. Um, bring back some of the the you know the quite large army of um, loan players they have, um, a lot of them spread around Italian football and and go from there for next season. As one uh, of my contacts in Italian football said to me after the appointment, Duncan, it's like putting a newly qualified driver in a Ferrari F1 car, and in this case, it actually is given the Agnelli's uh, connection to the car industry in Italy. Um, it does stink of panic and of uh, cost-cutting, that's for sure. Um, but I suppose you could make the argument that um, Frank Lampard had one season at Derby County as his apprenticeship. 
uh, in the Championship and then moved to Chelsea in a very similar situation to where Pirlo finds himself now as in, uh, you know, obviously a legend at the club. Uh, is that legendary status enough to carry into the dressing room in terms of authority? Uh, one of the differences being that uh, Lampard has the advantage of having Jody Morris at his side, who uh, is a very experienced UEFA Pro licence coach who was in uh, charge of Chelsea's under-18s and uh, under-20s for around seven years, I think, before going to Derby with Lampard when he took that job. Now, Peel, to my understanding, doesn't have a UEFA Pro licence. In fact, the qualification he has at this moment in time, I think, is a B licence, which at this moment in time qualifies him only to be head coach of a club in the third tier of Italian football. How did Juventus get over that? Because they've got about four to six weeks before the season starts. Hire someone with a pro licence to to be the head coach on the bench and have Pirlo advising him would be the, the, the standard of way of going around it. I think, look, there, there's a real trend in football to appoint um, big name former players at an early stage in their career. It's something, obviously, Pep Guardiola, um, I think, is very important in this trend. Um, you see Frank Lampard, you see Mikel Arteta getting the Arsenal job as his first um, full management job. Um, now Pirlo getting the Juventus job with zero coaching experience. Um, perhaps you can get away with it at a club like Juventus because they have such a, an advantage over their, the majority of the domestic rivals and, and you can afford to go down that route. But I think you're almost guaranteed that these guys are going to make mistakes in the early stages of their career and they're going to make mistakes under you know, the full glare of media attention. There's a contrast with Lampard in that he had been preparing to become a manager. He'd focused on becoming a manager. I think he, his, his pathway has been accelerated. And you know, we talked about the decision-making process he had when Chelsea came in for him um, in his first year of management. And in an ideal world, he would have had more experience at a, at a, a lower level before taking that job. But he, had, he felt he had to take the opportunity when it came. Um, Pirlo, I'm told, not so long ago when he was a, a player, used to joke with journalists and say, don't bet a euro on me becoming a manager. He, he was, at that stage of his life, he was so disinterested in the idea of management that that's what he used to tell people. So something's changed in his thinking. And, you know, that's not unusual. Again, you, you retire from football, you miss the buzz of the game, and then you think, okay, um, coaching is the way to go. But I don't, I don't think we should underestimate the level of risk involved here. And when it is driven by financial factors, rather than Juventus saying, Andrea Pirlo is the man, the future coach, let's uh, develop him carefully and, and turn them into a Juventus um, Pep Guardiola rather than that. And you've got a situation where it's, well, we're, we've had enough of Sari. We made a mistake appointing him. We need to change manager. We can't afford to go for someone like Pochettino. Um, so we'll have to take Pirlo now and, uh, and try and take advantage of the fact that we're kind of doing him a favour in his coaching career to, to hope that he doesn't press for... Um, players in the same way as Allegri was doing 
um, when his period at Juventus came to an end, the way Conte was doing when his period at Juventus came to an end, um, and, way, and the way any sort of high-level manager would, would naturally do had they been offered that job, knowing that the only real measure of success for them would be to win Champions League with that club. Well, I wholly suspect that um, given what we know about UV's financial situation, given what we're already seeing with it, within two days of Pirlo's appointment, a player like Ramsey being um, told that he's free to leave, that he agreed with uh, the management at, the, at Juventus that you know he wouldn't be spending money, or certainly not a lot of money, on players. And that's part of the reason why he's sitting in that uh, seat right now. On to uh, a very different grand old lady, uh, and that's the one of the Manchester United. We told you on Friday's pod that Jadon Sancho, the transfer of uh, the young England winger to Old Trafford, uh, was being held up by Borussia Dortmund's demand for uh, an extra €10 million Euros in the down payment. So it was €80 million Euros plus that United were willing to pay, but that Dortmund wanted 90 plus 20 in the add-ons. Um, there's been some fairly tough talking, Duncan, over the last couple of days when um, United have been uh, in action, of course, in the Europa League and Dortmund uh, claimed that they would only uh, do the transfer before they headed off to their pre-season training camp, which was yesterday. Sancho, of course, travelled with the rest of the squad. And then Michael Zork, the sport director, made a point of saying that Jadon Sancho will be playing at this club next season. Well, it's our understanding that um, United remain in a fairly similar and comfortable position to the one they were in at the end of last week, that they think this is very much a, a grandstanding type initiative by Dortmund in the hope that they can effectively play a game of brinksmanship that will see United cave in and uh, cave to their version of the payment structure with the extra €10 million Euros up front. Uh, and that they believe that in this is Dortmund that is they believe that in doing the uh, employing the tactics that they are that they can try and get United to do that however having spoken to sources at Manchester United uh, they believe themselves that the player definitely wants to come to them they do not believe there's any real competition for a signature from any other club and also that the player will if need be agitate for the move if things don't progress over the next two to three weeks. Now, interestingly, Duncan, we know that Sancho has already had disciplinary issues in the last season um, with Dortmund in terms of missing training sessions, turning up late for team meetings. He was even left out of the squad a couple of times, uh, having been sanctioned for those offences. Now, Someone who um, is close to this deal said, well, if that's what he's like when he's happy at a club, imagine what he's going to be like um, if he's trying to agitate his way out. Um, do you think there's a, there really is a time limit on this, obviously apart from the transfer window closing October the 5th? But Dortmund said there was a time limit on it and um, I don't think anyone from the Manchester United side believed that when, when they said it. And so Dortmund have now been forced... Um, they've had their bluff called on it, and they, their um, their answer is to have the sports director um, talk to the media yesterday after the deadline had expired, and with Sancho on his way to their Swiss training camp, 
saying that's it. Um, you know, his words were, we plan on having Jaden Sancho in our team this season. The decision is final. I think that answers all our questions. Last summer, we adjusted Jaden's salary to match the development of his performances. So in context, we have already extended the contract until 2023 back then. That That's an interesting extra um, factual element that Dortmund are putting out because the, the perception was that the contract only had two years to run. Dortmund are now saying they have three years on the deal, which obviously puts them in a more secure place in terms of if they do intend, if they are actually going to retain Sancho for another year, they'll still have that two years um, of contract to bargain with when um, other suitors that they hope to get involved in a in a, a bidding war uh, can come back and play in, it, in a year's time. I think the, the problem here is both clubs have a history in these situations of um, of one in Manchester United's case paying the money that, that is asked of them. Um, so we've seen Manchester United in numerous deals say we're not going to go above a certain level and they do end up paying the money for a number of those players, Harry Maguire, Arwan Bissaka, Bruno Fernandes, um, some of the most recent examples. And Dortmund have a history of saying, if you don't do a deal now, we're not going to do it at all. And then selling the player regardless. So they did that with Ousmane Dembele to Barcelona, albeit it was a huge transfer fee they received in the end. And you can understand why they took that deal. And you have to say that given development of Dembele's career, Subsequent to that point, um, they made a correct business decision um, in selling him to Barcelona. Um, and they did it with Pierre-Omeric Aubameyang. So I don't think either side believes the other um, when they're saying in Manchester United's case, we're not going to go any higher. And in Dortmund's case, they're saying, that's it, game over. We're um, not going to sell him now. We're going to keep him for the rest of the season. Um, we'll see the outcome. I think you're... you're it is important to point out that Sancho can force this if he decides to. And obviously that was a strategy as Mandembele used um, to get himself to Barcelona. Um, should also be noted, because we're talking about Dembele, that Dembele is an alternative that, as we told you about in the podcast um, last month, that uh, Manchester United had made inquiries. Um, the representative of Solskjaer had been in touch to ask what it would take to get him out of Barcelona, whether he would be available on a loan for the coming season and what the the salary costs would be on Dembele. So Solskjaer at least is considering alternative options should Sancho not go through. But as you've told us in you know great detail over the last few podcasts, Manchester United are confident they're going to get this player and they don't need to be in in a rush because you have that extended transfer deadline. Um, the Premier League doesn't start again till the 12th September. Manchester United probably won't start then because they're now managed to get into the, the semi-finals of the Europa League, which will allow them a, a, an extension on the start of their, their Premier League season, um, just getting past the, the might of FC Copenhagen last night. Um, he has been their first option all along. He is the player Solskjaer wants to add that creativity um, on the right side of his attack. They're only 10 million euros apart in terms of uh, 
if Manchester United accept what Dortmund were asking in that last stage of negotiations, it's not a great deal of money in the context of a of a deal that's total value of a 120 million euros. In the current financial climate, um, I'd say Dortmund, with their business model, um, would be very, very silly not to accept that kind of money. What we won't be seeing, or we, we don't think we're going to be seeing, is a takeover at Newcastle United after the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund withdrew their offer to buy the club. However, it has not ended there, has it, Duncan? Because Amanda Staveley, the chief executive of PCP Partners, who was um, effectively the figurehead of the bid and also an investor as well as the Rubin brothers, has been um, very busy, let's just say, trying to uh, lobby different elements of uh, the Newcastle support and indeed the people of Newcastle. And even the Prime Minister of the UK has got involved as well with regards to demanding uh, of the Premier League an answer to why they didn't give an answer. <laughs> yeah, we saw this from Amanda Staveley when she gave those interviews after PIF, the, the, the central backers of this takeover deal, the crucial element to going it through the, the, the organisation, Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund that was prepared to put in 80% of the capital um, for the takeover said categorically that they'd withdrawn from the deal. So Stavely gave these interviews and one of the, the things she said in those interviews was kind of a, a call to arms um, to uh, the Newcastle United supporters and sort of saying that um, she hadn't given up entirely on the deal, explaining that uh, it was the Premier League's fault that it hadn't gone through, that they, as we, we talked about in the podcast, that the Premier League had said they wanted Saudi Arabia as a nation to be a named director um, on the application process, which would allow them to make a judgment on Saudi Arabia's suitability to be director stroke owner of a Premier League football club. And Stavely said the Premier League made it so hard, it would be unprecedented. No country has ever become a director of a club. It's ridiculous. Um, and she went on to say they could have told us all this before we exchanged. It's up to the fans now. Because if the fans want this back on, then they're going to have to go to the Premier League and say this isn't fair. And that is pretty much what the fans have done. There is a petition amongst the Newcastle United supporters, um, I think launched by the Newcastle United Supporters Trust, which has now over 100,000 signatures, um, asking for an independent investigation into the process followed by the Premier League. As you say, um, Boris Johnson has um, written an email which the Newcastle United Supporters Trust has published um, in support of that demand that uh, there be an explanation and saying that he's uh, pleased that the independent football ombudsman has committed to advising the Premier League to provide a statement and that I can't think of any other um, incident in the history of Premier League football where the, where the Prime Minister, albeit in a personal capacity I understand, has written an email talking about um, the decisions of the Premier League over a takeover. Um, a big complaint from PCP 
is that the Premier League did not actually make a decision. Um, essentially, they refused to give a decision. And in the end, that delay over giving a decision, with it running over a three-month period, led to PIF to withdraw and make the statement that they, they were out of the deal. And they feel that the Premier League failed to serve its its purpose as a regulatory body, that its, its duty was to give a decision one way or another. And had they given a decision in the negative, that would have allowed the buying parties to challenge that decision, to take it potentially to arbitration. I think it's Rule X in the Premier League rulebook, which allows arbitration over board decisions. Um, and eventually, if, if they chose to go that way and they could get Mike Ashley, for example, on board with it, to take legal action against the league's decision and see whether it's, it um, adhered to English law on takeover of, uh, of companies. Um, you also, on top of Boris Johnson, you have a number of uh, UK parliamentary MPs uh, stating that the Premier League needs to explain what they did here. And, you know, I think it is a very um, effective campaign that's being waged, um, led by Amanda Staveley, to put political pressure on the Premier League. And, and, and it's, you know, proper political pressure. It's pressure from the government and from parliamentarians on the Premier League to explain why they did not give a decision on this matter and why the takeover has effectively been blocked by their failure to give a decision. Um, things that are being highlighted are the inexperience of the current Premier League chief executive, Richard Masters, who you know, it's a fact that the Premier League attempted to appoint other individuals as chief executives and they um, either turned down the, the, the role or stepped away from the role and, and Richard Masters was not first choice for um, the position as, as what we expect to be the long-term successor of uh, Richard Scudamore. Um, and that the Premier League has a new chairman and Gary Hoffman. And it's, you know, it's inarguable that both of those individuals who were board members, um, who were part of this assessment process of, of um, PIF, PCP and the Rubin brothers attempt to buy Newcastle United had not been in the positions for a particularly long period of time. Um, will the strategy work? I'm not entirely convinced that this is a particularly productive way to go. If you put yourself head to head with the Premier League um, and the board represents the other member clubs and you know PCP are briefing that certain clubs within the Premier League were opposed to the takeover. I understand that information to be correct. Um, there were lots of grounds in which people were opposed to this takeover. Um, uh, central, I think, to the business model of the Premier League is the, the Saudi Arabians um, allowing piracy of Premier League and other football, uh, major football competitions, broadcast rights in Saudi Arabia um, and failure to allow uh, the Premier League to take legal action to have that stopped. But there were also um, huge human rights concerns over having another um, nation state in charge of a Premier League club. Um, but if you if your strategy to try and get something back 
on the table is to embarrass the people who make the decisions and to question the rights of the existing clubs to be represented in that way by the board and um, to prevent or delay on approval. Um, that is a very confrontational way of going about things. Um, you could also take legal action. The, the guidance I have from the, the buying parties is that would be a last and nuclear option and that, that they'd like to avoid it because of the implications it was have for the Premier League. So I think they understand that, that an aggressive approach when you want to become a member of a club is a difficult one um, to get you across the finishing line. And, and I think there are also two other important elements here is that they no longer have a deal with Mike Ashley. They no longer have a valid contract that expired. Um, so even were the, the Premier League to change their decision or rather to give a decision, which would uh, presumably be to not approve the deal and um, PCP were to challenge that, they would still have to get Ashley on board with allowing them to have the club where they to succeed in that challenge. And, and your, the expectation would be that Mike Ashley would ask for more money in that situation. In fact, Amanda Staveley and co have, have indicated that once they went past the initial deadline on the deal before PIF withdrew, that Ashley tried to get more money out of them at that stage. I think the other element here is PIF have, have made a statement saying that they are out of the deal. Um, and my understanding is that when they said they were out of the deal, it was a categorical decision to pull out of that deal. So PCP would also need to get PIF back on board. And the guidance I have is they expect that would be viable. They, they say that they, they believe the Saudis are still interested in owning a Premier League club. And if they the opportunity, which was there previously, is presented to them again, that they would... Um, get on board with it. But I think it's an open question as to whether they actually would um, get on board with it if PCP managed to jump over all the very significant hurdles that are in front of them at the moment and which they're, you know, they're trying to uh, use Newcastle United supporters and use parliamentarians to help them uh, get beyond. Given Dominic Cummings' a well-known fondness for Durham, I think maybe they probably wrote to the wrong person because he really is the guy who <laughs> runs the country. Uh, maybe they should think about writing to Dominic rather than Boris and uh, getting him on board. Um, well, we shall keep an eye on that for you, of course, and keep you ahead of the news as we have uh, continuously. And uh, in the case of the Newcastle United takeover situation... Manchester City's uh, transfer window has not begun in the best of ways with uh, very talented uh, centre-back Eric Garcia refusing to negotiate a new deal with uh, the Etihad club. He has one year left on his current deal. Uh, Pep Guardiola said last week um, when talking about Garcia during the Champions League uh, resumption that he had spoken to the player and the player was very, very certain about not renewing. Now, this seems to be a familiar story, um, Duncan, with Manchester City and their best young talent. And a, and a strange one as well, given the very much vaunted amounts of money that City invests in their academy, 
not just in players, but in their infrastructure uh, and indeed the ex the ex structure, as it were, of the training ground itself. Uh, we just have to go back to Jaden Sancho leaving for Borussia Dortmund. Now Garcia looks at what's ahead of him in the team and the fact that, of course, uh, Guardiola has made it clear that he wants to renew centre-backs this summer. And you indeed revealed on the podcast only two weeks ago that he wants two centre-backs, not one. I suppose we can see Garcia's point here because at 19, uh, he wants to be playing football to develop himself and indeed develop his career. And yet what he sees instead is a very uh, expensively assembled defence who, which isn't working and he's still not getting a chance. Of course, Fernandinho has been playing at centre-half much of last season. Well, he, he got his chance and he's played quite a number of City's games towards the end of the season. I think the problem is um, they allowed the contract to run down to a year. Barcelona saw the opportunity of bringing the player back um, to the place where he, he started his, his footballing development. Um, they have told him they see him as Gerard Piquet's successor. Uh, they're obviously offering very good financial terms, as you would if you're, you believe the player is good enough to uh, replace a, a guy who's been the centre point of their defence since actually they took PK back from Manchester, back from Manchester United after Manchester United had signed him from their academy as a 16-year-old. It's a very familiar pattern here. Um, they have persuaded Garcia not to renew at Manchester City, so it's now essentially a process of do Manchester City hang on to him for a year, uh, lose him for training compensation payment, uh, which is uh, essentially peanuts, um, or do they try and get as much as they can out of Barcelona this summer, with Barcelona having indicated that they will not go above €10 million Euros for the player. So they're not going to make... Um, a significant amount of money out of this transfer fee either way. They could hold him for a year and uh, and use him occasionally as he's fit. Uh, then that would require an assessment over how well Garcia will perform if he's held at a club that he doesn't want to be at and uh, would prefer to move on to the next stage of his career. But yeah, I, I think it underlines a, a basic problem City have. You, you can spend as much as they have on their academy, as much as they have in recruitment. And they're, they're known in the English game to have put more money into signing players than any other club at present. They offer um, bigger fees um, to the, the individuals around those players to convince them to come. They, they've been, there's evidence of them offering um, employment to parents uh, to convince them uh, that their, their kid at 16 should or younger age should uh, join Manchester City. They offer a very good wage structure while they're there, um, which is great for getting players into the academy. But then you you have the real possibility that you hit a brick wall in terms of your development. And you get someone like Eric Garcia, even though he's got some games this season, seeing that City want to sign not one, but two new centre-backs this summer. They've already signed Nathan Ake from Bournemouth um, for an initial £40 million. Um, he is being signed as a backup to Americ Laporte and someone who can play left-back as well. They want an elite centre-back um, looking at some of the top names in central defence in European football, guys like Kalidou, Kulabai and um, 
Ruben Gias, Benfica and others. Um, Efier Garcia, compare that to the offer from Barcelona and the proposal from Barcelona to go back to your, your home country and, and be the next Gerard Piquet. It's not really a very hard choice. Um, and the history of the club in the Abu Dhabi era, era is to buy when they need new individuals. So Nathan Aki is no less than the eighth defender that's been signed for a fee, a transfer fee commitment of 45 million euros or more in the Abu Dhabi period of control of Manchester City, which is a, a huge expense on defenders. You're going to have to be exceptional to break in to that team and hold down a place. And you can look through that cadre of excellent academy players that Manchester City have spent a lot of money on, um, again, in the Abu Dhabi era. And the only one who looks like he has a genuine opportunity to hold down a first team place and become someone who is central to the team is, is Phil Foden, um, who has taken some time to get there. And uh, you can look at what Pep Guardiola says about Phil Foden. He, he said, um, last year, Phil is the most, most, most talented player I have ever seen in my career as a manager. His only problem is sometimes his manager doesn't put him in the starting 11. Hopefully in the future that can improve. So you, if Guardiola is being honest about those words, and he obviously rates Foden very highly, the conclusion you draw from that is you have to be the most, most, most talented player um, that one of the top managers and footballer in the game who's worked with some of the greatest players in the history of football has ever seen to have a chance of properly breaking into the Manchester City team. So your conclusion would be to do the same thing that Brahim Diaz did, that Jaden Sancho did, and what Eric Garcia is trying to do and, and say, I need to move elsewhere if I'm going to play football and get to the top level of the game. It looks like um, Foden will be the one who will be the exception to the rule, um, given not just Guardiola's comments, but he has played more game time this season than, than the season before. And with David Silva obviously leaving uh, on freedom of contract, uh, Guardiola's already on record as saying, I don't need to replace Silva because I have Phil Foden. Now, those are big shoes, not literally, obviously, to step into. <laughs> um, however, uh, Foden does look like uh, someone who might be able to set a different pattern for academy players coming through at Manchester City. Now, this being the early podcast of the week, it is heroes and villains time. And we have quite a special villain uh, in this one for you because Duncan has selected some arch nemesis of his own uh, beloved Dundee United to cast into the dungeon of shame. <laughs> I think they, they rushed into it of their own accord um, with quite, a bit, of, quite yes. a bit of lubrication involved in the process. These are the eight Aberdeen players um, who have been uh, forced into very humble apologies after um, two of them tested positive for COVID and six are now self-isolating when they, as a result, de deciding after um, losing Aberdeen's first game of the Scottish Premiership season, a big match, uh, a big rivalry game at home to Rangers, that they would go out drinking in Aberdeen, um, where they uh, broke the rules that were um, set out for Scottish footballers that the Scottish government had um, 
allowed them uh, to use and able to get football played again behind closed doors in Scotland. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, actually gave a press conference saying that she was furious at the players' behaviour and they blatantly broke the rules. And then um, three, uh, four days later, the entire city of Aberdeen was forced back into um, emergency lockdown measures with the First Minister closing every pub and restaurant um, from 5pm on Wednesday evening and uh, preventing people from visiting other households indoors. Uh, because of a spike in uh, COVID infections in the city. Um, so they, they made this um, very fulsome apology, uh, saying, first and foremost, we would like to apologise to every Aberdeen fan, the manager, everyone at the club, the football authorities, the first minister, all healthcare workers, along with everyone else that has worked tirelessly around the clock to get the country and in particular football back up and running again. And it was uh, pointed out to me by someone who actually lives uh, close to Aberdeen that the only people they didn't apologise to were the uh, inhabitants of Aberdeen um, who aren't all Aberdeen fans um, and have... Uh, had to suffer um, the uh, return of emergency lockdown uh, partially as a consequence of, uh, of their behaviour. So I don't think that's gone down uh, particularly well with some of the people of, of Aberdeenshire. Um, and I think it's an example of, of the problems football can have with its COVID regime and the, the kind of the bubble that footballers get into and, and a feeling that they are immune to a disease which can clearly be transmitted very easily if we um, if we lose our vigilance. I'm not sure about immune, uh, but I certainly having um, had some experience of being on those uh, lubricated nights out with footballers, they certainly believe they're invisible, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I've seen, seen some, some behaviour in my time by footballers who seem to think that no one can see what they're doing, and of course they're not famous. Anyway, uh, those are for another time, of course, and uh, if uh, you want to you know, ask some questions or, you know, just get in touch with us and try and force me to tell a few tales. And, you know, we're always willing to take a, take one of those on. Uh, my hero for the, for the week is kind of self-explanatory, Duncan, to be honest, because um, I can't just, you know, go past Robert Lewandowski, the Bayern Munich striker uh, in the 7-1 demolition uh, on aggregate of Chelsea in their Champions League roundup 16 game. Uh, notched up his 55th goal in 44 games this season, uh, proving, I think, with and beyond all doubt, that some things actually do get better with age. Uh, congratulations, Robert Lewandowski. You are the Transfer Window Podcast Hero of the Week. That's it for this uh, particular pod. Uh, thank you very much for listening. But also, if you want to get involved in the debate, you know that we welcome that. Please do so on our social media channels which are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram and Facebook. And also Duncan is at Duncan Castles and his personal account on Twitter. I'm at GarboSJ. Please also remember we have our own YouTube channel. Just search Transfer Window Podcast. It appears right at the top of your search. I've done it myself and it's, uh, it's very impressive. I've uh, did it myself and listened to it on there. And um, yeah, if that's your preferred method, of course, it is available on all your podcast platforms as well. 
We will be back later in the week with uh, the next podcast. Uh, until then, it just leads me to say stay safe and be well and thanks for listening.